She is a magician of sorts who makes ancient voices familiar while imbuing modern life with archaic resonance. So says Ricardo Steinberg of the poetry of Karen Shenfield. Welcome to Behind the Drive Shortcuts. My name is Douglas McLean, and this is part two of our interview with poet Karen Shenfield. I'd love for you to read Hamam, which I have been reading nonstop, and I didn't, uh, luckily I found this on a website somewhere of your poetry, and it just blew my mind. Um, There's so much intimacy and beauty and erotic, uh, lots of stuff, so I hope you'll chat, I hope you'll read it, and then you could chat a little bit about it if you don't mind, please. Okay. I'm happy to read it to you. Sometimes I get embarrassed when I read this poem in public, but I'm going to read I won't, it. I won't look. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read along with you. Hamam. Hamam. An upturned bowl domes this deluged world. Poured through a glass constellation, stray shafts dissolve in steam, budding on marble bared skin. This too is a form of worship. I stand on a precipice drenched in songs, laughter, shouts. Through a veil of mist glimpse arms, legs, thicketed pubic mound, a breast's sepia star. For precious hours the men are banished. I pass under an archway down hesitant steps, seeking my place. Out of a moment's silence, questions ring, bright as brass, Arabic vaporizing into French. De où êtes-vous? And comment vous vous appelez? Questions and answers that defy translation hang in fallen cumulus. There are foreign exchanges the bankers will never know. I release my will like sweat through expanded pores, prostrate myself on stone. Hands gloved in camel's hair slough the dead. Firm strokes charge my spine, the trajectories of my limbs. We are in no hurry. We have rituals to enact. She twists open silver taps, dips a copper cup to damp my flesh. And I cannot stop her this flood of images of how her eyes are robbed from the fennec, her lips are stained with pomegranate, her soaked hair flows like a startled wadi after rain. She soaps me, her fingers lingering on my nipples between my thighs. I stand so she can dry me. We compare heights, shapes, shades, trade the sharp syllables of our husband's names. I leave no more nor less than who I am, polished with almond oil, scented with rose. Fantastic. That's an incredible poem. Holy man. You must have uh, just fallen down when that came through your hand. Uh, very powerful. So many things going on there. Um, 
Uh, is there, I don't know the whole, like you shared a bit about the story of that uh, book of poetry, so you're taking someone else's position, but there's, in that particular poem, there's something so rich, um, I'd almost say spiritual in a way, because even though uh, interpretive, there's some sort of um, physical activity going on. There's something much more profound. I mean, I I particularly uh, love the lines, um, you know, this too is a form of worship, and for precious hours the men are banished. I mean, the whole idea that the constraints that keep us from seeing who we really are uh, I mean, and I'm not talking about in, in terms of sort of some g- gender politics or anything like that, but who we really are is hidden from us, from all this conformity outside of us. So it's a wonderful poem, Karen. You should really uh, extremely... Are all the poems in that set uh, like that, like in that book? Are they kind of similar in, in approach? or? Um, no, I mean, I think that... My poems are quite, I write, I think, with a lot of variety. Okay. Sometimes I think I write with too much variety, but yeah. but someone said, no, that's not true. Yeah. I mean, this this was a, you know, this was an experience that came out of crossing the Sahara Desert. Right. And in fact, um, most of the places that we stayed at did not have a shower. So in order to bathe, you went to the hammam, which means, you know, a steam steam bath. bath, And it's also where people would shower. And of course, there'd be um, times for women and times for men. Right. And Algeria, Algeria was a very, very strict, strict Muslim country. The strictest, especially as you got south. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Algiers would have been different, but in the smaller oasis towns that we were, in fact, very few women left their homes. Women primarily lived on the rooftops of the homes. And even the shopping was primarily done by men. So when you, you really didn't see a woman, and if you saw a woman, she was completely like covered up right. in many places in the Sahara. They covered themselves up. Yeah. So you, you not even saw two eyes. Right. They would put a thing over their heads and you saw one eye. Yeah. So when I went to this steam bath, yeah. I was so startled after like such a long time right. not seeing another woman right. to suddenly be with with in this world with all these women and like not all covered up like like naked yeah it was just like it was just so startling to go from being with no women and so um it was a very startling experience now here again i mean it's i what i do as a poet usually is i take an experience and then i exaggerate you know I, I well, I could outright lie as yeah. a poet. Yeah. There's nothing poetry doesn't have to be truth. Yeah. Um, but what I often do is I, I don't outright lie, but I might exaggerate. Right. Now it's true. What happened was, you know, the women they were because I looked different than them. They sure. were so curious about me. Right. 
they were really curious about me. And in fact, they did bathe me. Right. But it didn't get as erotic as right. I put in the poem. But right. they really did take gloves and they were watching me. And we were talking. And in and, and fact, one of the questions that one of the women asked me was, does your husband beat you? Right. And I said, no, he doesn't beat me. And the response was, well, why not? <laughs> why doesn't your husband beat you? Like they were all beaten by their husbands. Right. Now, you see, if I would be a certain kind of poet, I might write about that more explicitly. Yeah. But as a poet, I tend to not want to be as explicit. Mm -hmm. So I just use the lines like the sharp syllables of our husband's names, names yeah. and the men being banished right. rather than write a poem about wife beating. Right. Right. So this is just sort of telling you something about the way that I am as a poet, because mm -hmm. I feel like you can actually reach people that the profoundness comes in poetry with being implicit right. rather than explicit. Exactly. Yeah. But also some of this is unconscious. Like yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was in that hammam for hours. Actually, you're making me remind of it, me of it now. And I forgot when I came back to the hotel room, Stephen had said to me, my God, Karen, you were gone like for such a long time. Yeah. Like I had experienced like a lifetime in those right. few hours. So it was a very, you know, it, it was an incredible experience. And then in terms of like, being able to write it, it just started with that line, an upturned bowl, because there was a um, there was a dome right. in the hammam. Yeah, there was. I've, I've been a couple of hammams where it's been been beautiful domes, and in the dome, actually, this might have been El Wed, where every place had a dome because domes would reflect the light, so they wouldn't get so hot, and then the you know the light was being pierced coming in in shafts of light yeah. just like i describe it mm -hmm. but i mean you speak about I, I am a spiritual person like i said i don't know if i believe in god i don't know what i believe but this also just goes back to my childhood and uttering those prayers so i think a spirituality does infect my writing even when it's you know it, it comes through unconsciously when i when i write yeah. Well, and, certainly, I mean, making... certainly came through in that poem. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's very rich, uh, powerful writing. So, and that's from the Fertile Crescent, right, from two thousand and five. Anyway, I'll make sure that. And we... I think I have to. I think I must say that this poem, the language of this poem, is influenced. Certain times, you know, I mean, singer songwriters, I'm sure they get influenced by. Oh, sure. People that they listen to and that yeah. they admire. Sure. So I, I love a poet named Eric Ormsby. He is from, I don't know if he's, I, I think he's still alive. He's older. He, he was also a, a scholar of Arabic. And he was from the U.S., but he taught at McGill. And I met him because um, for a while I was the, the poetry review editor for a magazine called Books in Canada. Right. 
And so I had this lovely chance to, you know, books were sent into the magazine and I got to choose um, which writers which would review which books and deal with the writers and the poets. Right. I was often poets, inter- you know, reviewing other poets. Yeah. Um, so Eric Ro- Armsby wrote a couple of reviews for me and I also got to read his writing. And some of his stuff is really expo- ex- extraordinary. He's a linguist and speaks many languages and that tends to make people's writing very rich, like a like a writer like Nabokov. Yeah. I think he's, you know, and he, he's like fluent in seven languages. Right. You can often tell when a when a writer has more than one language in them besides English. There's a certain richness. And Eric Ormsby is definitely one of them. My name is Douglas McLean and we'll be right back with more of Karen Shenfield. Welcome back to Behind the Drive Shortcuts. My name is Douglas McLean, and we're joined today with Karen Shenfield, published poet, filmmaker, and author. This is part two of an interview that we've done on Shortcuts. Please welcome Karen Shenfield. Talking about the Isle of Wight, I'd like to start with actually that poem from uh, The Measure of the World, On the Isle of Wight. It really caught me and... uh, Maybe you could read that for us, and then I can ask you something about it or something. Okay. I pulled these up so that I could access them quickly, and I have it right here on my screen, and I will read it to you. Okay. On the Isle of Wight, a kind of dyslexia, or ODD perhaps. You read the map, plug in the GPS, then, without fail, Steer left instead of right, right instead of left. Or circle round the only roundabout as if we have all day. But we do, you say. Never mind, you say. The needles to Bembridge is close as A to B. On the IOW, we can't stray far away. Don't be cross, my love. It's plain there's no wrong way. If we miss the road, we'll take the little lane. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, that's a that's a gorgeous poem. Um, there's a lot happening in there, and uh, so let me just probe a little bit with it. First, the thing that's very noticeable about it is the use in the poem of. Uh, I, I don't know what the right word is, but like O-D-T, O-D-D, G-P-S, uh, L-I-O-U. What do you call those? Uh, you know, when you just use uh, capitals instead of an actual, uh, instead yeah, of saying Yeah, I don't know. The, 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 in my senior brain, it's the yeah, an acronym. There's, yeah, it's an acronym. That's right. Yeah. And then um, the thing that caught me first was the, the idea of ODT, which is a kind of destructive disorder in relationship to GPS. So the whole idea of having a kind of a compass that's out of whack. And then there seems to be two characters in the poem, but it's hard to discern whether they're, if the two characters are inside the narrator or if there's one, if there's a companion or not. So I don't know if you saw these things. And then, of course, the thing that 
moved me completely out of my socks was if we miss the road, we'll take the little lane, you know. So such a generous, uh, because the compass, even though broken, finds its way. Do you, was all those feelings moving through you when you read that or when you wrote it? Did you have those kind of thoughts going on or did any of that tricks appeal to you? Because it's pretty profound and a lot going on there, so. <laughs> well, you're going to laugh. Okay, so, well, interestingly enough, so why is it that I I write so much about the Isle of Wight? Right. So there's, okay, so there's just a little, I'll try to be very short about this. Many years ago, um, someone made the first website about me, just when websites were sort of coming up. And um, right. um, a friend of mine, who's also a poet and a writer, Lil Bloom, Lillian Bloom, who lives in Hamilton. She took me to a friend's house and he recorded me reading some of my poetry and put it online. Right. And it sort of sat there online. And I guess, though, like a message in the bottle that floated across the ocean, a person named Stephen John Jones, who actually was a shortwave radio buff and he he was producing his own show that was um, produced on the Olive White, then broadcast out of Italy, a relay service in Italy, and went out to the world on English language poetry from around the world. Right. He somehow found this website with me, and I got an email message out of the blue from the sky and saying, would you mind if I broadcast your poetry on my shortwave radio program? So through that, we became friends, and I went to visit him. He invited me. I did more stuff on his radio show, more readings. I read my poetry at Tennyson's house on the Isle of Wight, and I fell in love with the Isle of Wight. So the colonel you speak about, you asked me about, you know, what's the provocation for writing poetry, the inspiration? The inspiration for that poem was, in fact, that when I got there, I found that people called the Isle of Wight the I-O-W. Oh, okay. And actually, that's what I, that, it's interesting that you know that, because yes, I think that that is one of the poetic things in that poem. Right. You noticed really one of the things that I was trying to do and have fun with. You know, because I spoke about a poem being about words. Right. So I just thought, oh, everyone here calls this place the IOW. And I never heard of, like, the use of the IOW. Yeah. And then, I mean, you know, my friend Fraser Sutherland, who was a wonderful poet and who passed away, I think it was either this year or last year, you know, he told me, don't write poems that are always grim. Make sure you write some poems that are fun. Yeah. So really, this is like, I think that this is one of my most fun and playful poems. And that's really what I wanted to play with. Okay. Now, really, though, the poem, and I, I almost never stray too, too far from the truth in my poems. So Stephen, lovely Stephen John Jones, and I hope he gets to hear this show at one point. He would be driving us around the IOW and and actually there was nothing wrong with this map or wrong with his GPS but he never followed them and he always just would go the wrong way okay like really this is just the conversation we had in the car okay but when you put it down yeah and this way I mean he didn't say the exact same words but he actually really said don't worry 
if we miss the road, we'll take the little lane. Right. Now, Stephen is not my lover. He's just a dear friend. Yeah. But I thought that actually, so here you talk about truth and literature. So you begin with the truth. But I thought it made the poem sound more intimate and warm to right. add the word my love. Yeah. Um, into the poem sure. so that to make the relationship between the 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 um the i the speaker and the, like the conversation between sort of two lovers and not just between friends right. so i interjected the word my love right but really that's exactly what stephen john john yeah but of course it can have metaphoric yeah so yes. here you talk about you know, literally, he's literally he said, "If we miss the road, we'll take the little lane," because the IOW is filled with little lanes. But then I thought, wow, that has that has a lot of metaphoric resonance. Absolutely, because if one misses one one, you know, and that could be right. metaphoric for my life and what I was talking about, and to measure the world, right. sort of like one one way being blocked. Right. But then there's there's another way that opens up for one metaphorically. Yeah, well, and I I also took you know being guided from by a higher force, like a higher kind of unseen presence, perhaps or hand, you know. So I I I I saw it as seeing something very clearly in our predicament. Right? Sometimes we think we have to know the way when very often we're just being gently guided along. At least my, at my old age now, I'm starting to see my whole life was guided by something. This is a part two of an interview with Karen Shenfield on Behind the Drive Shortcuts. My name is Douglas McLean. So grateful that you were here. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in to the other podcasts from Hunters Bay Radio.